It's Wednesday, March 29th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Science. Is there anything it can't do? Better question. Is there anything it shouldn't do? Answer, clearly yes. Like say the fake Pope coat and also possibly COVID-19. But you're not off the hook yet, raccoon dog. And now there's this. An Australian company produced a woolly mammoth meatball to demonstrate the potential of lab-grown meat. The Economist there reporting that scientists seeking to excavate the past and resurrect one of the great creatures to bestride the earth did so in order to eat it. I don't think this is why we were supposed to get into genomic sequencing in the first place. If, if you ask the guy who thinks woolly mammoth and then thinks meatball, if you ask him, okay, what three people from history would you have for dinner? He might answer from the cannibalist perspective. Copernicus, uh, too stringy, Ben Franklin, well-marbled. The report continues. The team used a mixture of mammoth and elephant DNA. They originally wanted to make a dodo dish, but the necessary DNA sequences do not exist. Eh, dodo. What do you need to eat the dodo for? We all know. Tastes like extinction chicken. There was one flaw in the plan so glaring a caveman could see it. No one has yet eaten a prehistoric meatball, but the taste would be hard to verify. Mammoths went extinct 4,000 years ago. Indeed. Which inspired the scientists' next project, Unfrozen Caveman Food Critic. Ugh, give one star. Flavor profile too rich, though paired nicely with Riesling. This has been Australopithecus Deliciousness. Join us next time when we review The Giant Beaver. Castoroides hard and crispy on outside, warm and gooey on inside, ugh-like. Now smash like button, smash! On the show, he became the Hulk at the end, didn't he? On the show today, the women's final four and also previous 60, we're watching more than ever, but just how much? But first, few jobs in politics are tougher than mayor of Chicago. Just ask outgoing mayor Lori Lightfoot, who wasn't outgoing enough to survive a runoff. The two men who did represent different visions for public safety and defining what makes a good school system. The term defund the police, and to a lesser extent, the policy of defunding the police, is also a contentious topic in this race. To discuss the candidates, we are joined by Eric Zorn, founder of the Picayune Sentinel and former columnist for the Chicago Tribune, who moderated one of the debates in the lead-up to the big day on Tuesday. Join us for Eric Zorn up next. The runoff election to decide the mayor of Chicago takes place April 4th. The candidates, the remaining candidates, are Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis. And if you don't live in Chicago, I would point to this race as a fascinating picture of where urban, mostly democratic America is. Maybe even more so because Chicago has its own unique problems. Eric Zorn was a news and opinion columnist for the Chicago Tribune from 1986 to 2021, and then he left the Tribune for the upward mobility, the much better 
perch uh, as owner and proprietor of the Picayune Sentinel, available on Substack. It's one of the most successful Substacks, political Substacks out there, and it is just about one city, the second city, a big city, but Chicago. He's doing well on Substack. He hosts one of the, I think, a dozen debates that the two candidates have had, and he's an analyst of the Chicago political scene. Eric, welcome to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Nice to talk to you. How many debates have they had? I think it's about eight or nine so far. Yeah. It's like every other night seems like there's been a, a new debate. I felt really privileged to be moderating, co-moderating one of them. And then I realized that there were so many of them that uh, that the, uh, the <laughs> currency was a little bit cheapened by it. But no, they've been going at each other pretty hot and heavy. And there was one forum recently where they'd been invited to debate and their handlers just said, you know, these are just getting too nasty. Let's appear individually and answer questions. And so we don't have to confront one another. So it's, it's been a pretty rough and rowdy race, I got to say. Yes. And from listening to you, and I should recommend to listeners, they also listen to the uh, Minting Rascals podcast, which is a great political podcast uh, that you're one of the panelists on. I know you've been a bit dispirited by the quality of answers and just the campaign tenor overall. Yeah, very much so. I... I, uh kind of liked Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson is, again, just to refresh, he's the Cook County Commissioner. He is a uh, Chicago Teachers Union lobbyist, uh, and he's far, he's perhaps the most liberal of the candidates in the original nine who were running. And then and then Paul Vallis is, uh, I think, the second most conservative of the original nine who were running. And uh, their answer, and, and Johnson was, I think, very impressive in the early debates when there were nine candidates on the on the field and he got a couple of minutes in each debate and he got his talking points out well. He's a very charismatic guy. He's 47, uh, a great talker. And I was very impressed with him in, in that round. The more I hear of him, however, and I hear this from a lot of voters I've talked to, the more I hear of him, the less I like him, the less enthusiastic I am about him. He, do, he doesn't seem to be much deeper than his sound bites. Uh, Paul Vallis is more conservative than I am, uh, certainly, and he's uh, uh, he, he tends to uh, say things like that he's going to hire back 1,200 police officers who have been retour retired, which I think is insane. Uh, that, well, that, not that, that he not that he would try to hire some back, but that as his solution to or a mainstay of his solution that 1,200 police officers are just waiting for the Vallis election. They're like, okay, sign me up again. Right. I mean, like they're going to come back from their from their fishing cabins in Wisconsin and their nice pensions and and rejoin the police force <laughs> during such a difficult time. So neither of them are giving satisfaction answers. One one thing that has come up a lot here is the defund the police slogan that was had a lot of currency back in 2020. And I think a lot of us, including me, saw that this was a really lousy slogan, very easily misinterpreted and skewed. And uh, Johnson had embraced this slogan and this goal back in 2020. And I, ch- I challenged him on this during the debate. And he said, well, I said it was a political goal. I never said it was mine. And and the audience has groaned. It's like yeah. there's such such political double talk. Um, Paul Vallis has talked about handcuffs on the police, and clearly the uh, implication being that you got to take those handcuffs off the police so that they can go back to I don't know chasing after suspects and beating them or something. Uh, you're on the record of saying we need to quote take the handcuffs off police. That sounds like a recipe for police misconduct that costs taxpayers. I- more than $80 million a year in settlement costs, and it also erodes the trust that is so vital to violence prevention. Um, how will, quote, removing the handcuffs from police 
build trust with the community and fight crime. Well, please let me know where I said that because I know I've been on the stage where one, one or two of the uh, individuals next to me would make reference to that. But the bottom line is I have talked about over and over again in columns, et cetera, is to restore proactive policing and proactive policing that is consistent with the consent decree. And I've said that over it's, and It's over unclear again. exactly what he means by that, but then he runs away from those kind of comments. It, that these, these candidates don't tend to answer the questions that are asked of them, but instead go back to their talking points. And I guess we should be used to that, right? As, as political analysts and observers, this is what politicians do during debates. But, but uh, the fact that there's so many debates and they keep saying, that they keep ducking the same questions over and over again. I, I've talked to a lot of people who are, you know, who are chronic voters, I should say, and they're and they're not voting this time. They're thinking that really? they, I can't, in good conscience, pull the lever for either of these guys. The, 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 one of the real complaints about Brandon Johnson is that he is not ready to be mayor of Chicago. He's been a Cook County commissioner, which is a legislative post. He hasn't run anything. And he's been a lobbyist. Right. And he's got a lot of good progressive ideas. He wants to you know, increase the, uh, the hotel tax. He wants to tax you know, transactions on uh, expensive properties. And he wants to add a, a financial transactions tax to the, to the trading companies that are in the, in the uh, city. Got a lot of ideas like that. But there's no sense that he's a got a way to implement them. Vallis is a, a bureaucrat. From way back, he, is, he has run school districts. He was the city budget director. He is used to running large operations and understanding them. The question is, do you want someone who is pretty pretty far to the right, as far as the city goes, running, the, running those departments, even though he is, I think, far more experienced in those areas? Right. And just in terms of charisma, I would agree with you. I've watched not all 10, 8 debates. I've watched maybe 4 or 5. And Johnson's, just on a sentence-by-sentence level, is at times exquisite, except when it comes to actually talking about his endorsement of defunding the police. We cannot find, no one could find a quote where he says, that is why I support defunding the police. But they can find a quote or many, many, many quotes where he was asked as he was in 2020, right when the protests slash riots were occurring, he was asked by WGN questions like, there was rioting and organized looting last night and you're calling to defund the police. Explain that. And so he doesn't begin his answer with, yes, I am calling to defund the police, but he does explain that. He wades right in, acknowledging the premise of the question later on in that interview. But commissioner, by defunding the police department, what are you hoping to accomplish? And he doesn't say, I'm not hoping to defund the police department. He just answers the question. It is so clear that he believes in defunding the police. I think a lot of voters, and I want to get to this in a second, must be insulted or have a problem with his denial that he ever agreed with that policy plank. Yeah, exactly. The, what he needed to do, I think, was to say, look, 2020 was a moment in our country and there was a lot of talk about how we we're going to re rethink, reformulate how we deal with policing. And this was a slogan that people had adopted. It meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And there certainly are activists out there who think we should get rid of police forces and prisons. I mean, they, that, but that is a real fringe element. And I don't think Brandon Johnson was part of that. He, the more he talks about what he wants to do, he wants to get at the root causes of crime. Uh, he wants to redirect some of the resources that are go going out of policing toward social services, mental health services, uh, kind of crime prevention programs, intervention programs that would l ultimately lower the crime rate. That's the idea behind 
defunding or rethinking policing. And I think a lot of people are on board with that. Remember, Chicago is a fairly liberal city. Chicago voted 85% or so for Joe Biden. Right. So this is not MAGA country here. There, there are little pockets of the city that might be. But but Vallis is looking to attract voters here who are frustrated by the rise in crime that we saw during the pandemic and the fact that it hasn't come down quite the way they wanted it to. And also because the kinds of crime that we're seeing are spreading into traditional neighborhoods that don't see a lot of crime. We're talking about carjackings, uh, catalytic converter thefts and, and uh, armed robberies and things like that, that you didn't tend to see in some of the wealthier neighborhoods. And now they're they're making their encroachment there. And, and people are saying, like, they want whatever the next mayor is going to do. They want th they want that to stop. And they don't want to wait for social programs to kick in over the years. They want it done now. And that's where I think a lot of Paul Vallis's support is coming from. Yeah. And the city of Chicago uh, is beset by crime, uh, especially murder being the top line crime. It is in terms of murder rate, the 10th worst in the country. I think it's uh, 24 per 100,000, but it has the most murders in the country. And watching these debates as a New Yorker, I find it interesting because the debate here in New York is about how crime is out of control. And that's sometimes exaggerated, uh, spurred along by our mayor, Eric Adams. But they talk about Los Angeles and New York as let's do it like them. Let's uh, adopt some of the solutions that New York has used to conquer murder, which is kind of curious, but I can understand compared to Chicago. It's It seems like an attractive set of policies to reach for. Yeah, you got to remember, though, that the, that the murders, the really awful violent crimes tend to be isolated in some of these really uh, dispossessed communities, that it's not the kind of crime that you see in on the northwest side of Chicago, the north side of Chicago. It's, it's the kind of crime you see in these inner city neighborhoods, and it has been bad before. Yes. And I don't think that, that those statistics are really what's driving people's concern. I, I do think that it's these, these lesser crimes that are still really traumatic, right? that, that a, a carjacking, to bring that up again, or, or to hear thieves pull up in front of your house and start sawing off catalytic converters from cars. It's a sense that things are out of control, that shoplifting has become really brazen, and you want someone who is going to fix that somehow. And so I think that's where that comes from. You're right. Chicago's murder rate is not the highest in the country, but there are so many people here and it's way higher than it is in New York and Los Angeles. And there is like a sense of like, we've got to figure out what they're doing right in New York and Los Angeles that we're not doing here. Mm -hmm. I, and I do want to get to education, but on crime, I, uh, as, as I've mentioned to you just now, uh, you can't, it, it is, it, uh, stretches credulity to think that Brandon Johnson didn't endorse uh, defunding the police. However, he's very clear now that that's not what he would do. And he's also clear that what he means is redirect money to social services. And I wonder as a voter, should we, is it the best practice of voters? Do you think just in terms of civic hygiene to say, all right, whatever the phrase was then the guy's pretty clear about what his policies are now, or should a voter be uh, differently oriented and say, you know, there's one way to look at it. Like if he lied about it, then he could lie about it now. Or, you know, if he was really dedicated to uh, the crime solutions that I endorse, he never would have been tempted by defund the police. There, It seems to me there are a couple of paths to forgiving him for uh, that slogan and a couple of paths for holding him accountable and voting against him because of it. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that his mistake so far has been in not saying just what you said there. 
that he is is unwilling to admit what he said and what he meant in 2020. I think that his thinking probably has evolved as he's running for mayor and he's going through more of the city, talking to more residents about how to deal with cr the crime situation, that his thinking about how this is done has changed. and that. He, but he doesn't want to own that because if you say that you are now opposed to the slogan defunding the police, there is a certain core element of your support that is going to rebel against that, that really feels strongly that that was the right slogan. And, and he's not saying that there's a similar thing happening on the other side, which is that Vallis gave an interview back in 2009 on a cable TV talk show, and he said that he, he admitted or said that because of his religious upbringing, he is personally opposed to abortion. But right. he went on to say that he that for his entire political career, which is true, that he's always been pro-choice as a, as a matter of law. And that that makes sense to me. I know a number of people who are who are Catholic and are, follow other faiths who who wouldn't choose abortion for themselves, who wouldn't recommend it, but who are who believe that it is it ought to be a woman's right to choose. Yeah, among those people are John Kerry and Joe Biden. Exactly, this. exactly. And 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 Brandon Johnson's campaign and his people who run against him are saying that he is anti-choice, that he will try to restrict abortion rights. I think that's fundamentally dishonest. Now, Vallis has tried to clarify that, but when I hear Johnson's campaign saying that that uh, Paul Vallis is an, is anti-choice. There's a real difference between being anti-abortion and anti-choice that they deliberately are, are skewing. By the, by the same token, Vallis's campaign is running ads saying Brandon Johnson wants to defund the police. And Johnson doesn't yeah. want to defund not that the police. Not in that verb tense, not in the present tense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, so really what we're, we're talking about here is an, an election between between two different approaches. Now, it is true that they do have different approaches, that Vallis does want to bring the police force back up to its original strength if he can. It's very difficult to do because it's you know, police departments all over the country are having recruitment problems. But he wants to he wants to bolster the police. He wants to spend more money. He's not going to cut the budget. Johnson has talked about cutting the budget. He won't deny that he's going to cut the police budget. He wants to redirect the resources. I think that most people can agree that we do need to fund other kinds of treatment programs for crime, that we do need better youth programs, we need better housing, we need better education, that crime is not just a, a, you know, not enough police officers on the corners. It's, a, it's caused by a lot of different factors. We all understand that. The question is going to be what the priorities are and who's going to handle the situation quickly. And that's, uh, I think that people really want answers. They don't want to wait for, uh, you know, education programs to kick in and social services and mental health clinics to open. They want this crime wave to cease tomorrow. Right, right. To, just to go back to um, your assessment of the campaign strategy, the messaging around Johnson talking about if he ever believed in defunding police. Another thing could be going on, which is that among the people he interacts with, among his peers, among the people in in his particular uh, part of the Democratic Party, there is a little bit of hand wave where you could say, well, we all know what we meant. And they could generally agree, yeah, we all know what he meant. But the broader Chicago electorate, which isn't very right wing, but certainly includes elements that never believed in that and was always uh, bothered by the slogan, they don't all know what you meant. And so maybe he's just speaking to the people who already converted, you know, talking inside the house and not recognizing enough that there are many other people who are potentially convertible if you, you know, talk about it differently. I mean, in a way, 
he could win on a slogan if Chicago was the kind of electorate, like, say, Portland, Oregon, where 70 to 80 percent of the people would say, yeah, we all know what you believed in that. But then again, if he were running in Portland, Oregon, it probably wouldn't be a tight race against Paul Vallis. Well, you got to remember, though, that Vallis is much more in the tradition of Old Man Daly, of Rich Daly, his son, and Rahm Emanuel, the previous mayors of our city, besides Lori Lightfoot, have been right out of the Paul Vallis mold of this of this very middle of the road to right leaning Democrat. Um, and and so Vallis is in that mold much more so than Johnson. Johnson would be more of a departure. Lori Lightfoot said all the right things when she came in four years ago. And yet she proved to be a big disappointment to people. And I, I, and I believe that right now a lot of people are having some second thoughts about dumping her overboard because mm. although she had a lot of problems with, with candor and she did not know how to play nice with others, she did seem to be much more in the, in the center than either of these two candidates are. But it's right. too late for that. We're going to have either Vallis or Johnson. And like I say, a, a lot of voters seem to me to be, to be still either on the fence or just not going to vote. They just can't take either of these candidates. And I, and I, you know, I, I feel that way sometimes myself. And I never feel that way. I'm a, I vote all the time. So, and the, and the latest polls, I should say, show them within just a couple points of each other. Vallis is leading by uh, two points, forty-six to forty-four in the latest poll, which has been a pretty good poll. And that's within a margin of error of like four percent. So, so this this race is really a toss up, and it's and it's not these guys are not similar. This is, it's it's a stark choice, and the, and there's it's it's been a long time since there's been a real choice like this for Chicago voters. So the other thing I want to talk to you about is that Johnson's strategy seems to be twofold. One is to emphasize his own youth and uh, therefore optimism, change election, those sort of messages. But the other is to emphasize and perhaps exaggerate Vallis's conservatism. Uh, there was a time when Vallis even mused about running as a Republican. In the latest debate, when the time when candidates get to ask each other questions, Johnson said, will you vow to tell your uh, often angry supporters to stand down, given what we saw on January 6th? Has that been successful? Are people very nervous in the mostly Democratic city of Chicago that perhaps Vallis is a Republican in uh, wolf's clothing or a sheep in wolf's clothing or a Democrat in Republican's clothing? And is this idea of youthful energy in a change election so appealing that that might win the day? Well, he's 69 years old and he has run for governor and he ran as and lieutenant governor as a Democrat in the past. Uh, and he served with Daly, who was part of the Democratic machine in Chicago for many years. So it's like his, his he does have a lot of Democratic credentials to, to speak for. He has some conservative leanings having to do, I think, mostly with, with education and his alignment with the Fraternal Order Police, that they have endorsed him and that he actually helped them in their con recent contract negotiations. He did it, he did it for free, but he did he he is endorsed by them and he has worked with him, that there is a sense that he is too cozy with the police. At the same time, there is a sense that Brandon Johnson is too cozy with the teachers union. The teachers union is very strong here. And uh, there's a, you know, that he will be on the same side of the bargaining table with them as they're negotiating the next contract with the city. So there are, are those things. Has this 
uh, approach of painting Vallis as too conservative, uh, too much of a Republican worked. I think to a to a degree it has. When you talk again, you just talk to voters. They say you know he's he's too Republican adjacent. That there's the things that his his alignment with privatizing schools and so on is is too much. Uh, but I do think that this is really going to boil down to people asking themselves who is going to get this job done. And who's going to get it done quickly? And again, and because people say crime is issue one, two, and three in Chicago, I, I don't think that it necessarily should be. I think there are some other there are issues: housing, education are big deals, and and our the entire budget problem, transit. Those are all all should be very big deals. But people say crime is one, two, and three, and I really think that the the candidate whose message resonates most effectively on that is going to win the election. Eric Zorn was a 35-year columnist for the Chicago Tribune. He now runs the Picayune Sentinel. On April 4th, he will have the I Voted sticker on one side of his lapel and perhaps a rendered garment on the other side. Eric, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. And for more of Eric Zorn, including a reflection on his time as a columnist for the Chicago Tribune and where he sees the entire newspaper, nay, media industry going, check us out on Pesca Plus. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. A distinct bonus conversation with the estimable Eric Zorn. And now the spiel. The final four is set is a misleading statement. It should be the final fours are set because the men's quartet was decided over the weekend. And two nights ago, Virginia Tech and heavy favorite South Carolina won their way onto or into the women's semifinals. The men's basketball tournament is worth a billion dollars a year to the NCAA from TV sponsors. The women's game nets the NCAA a small fraction of that, maybe 3%. It's hard to calculate the exact amount because the women's games are auctioned off as part of a package of 20 sports, and that whole package is worth about $35 million a year. The men's game to watch, bet on, attend, and subsidize is much more popular than the women's game, but it is not 33 times as popular. So here's my question today. How much more popular is it? It is very hard to get exact figures, though I think the general impression conveyed by a lot of headlines is a bit misleading too. Let's go back a couple of years. CNBC reporting CBS saw 14% decline in viewers for NCAA men's basketball championship game while ratings for women's title game on ESPN grew. Same year, Washington Post, NCAA title game TV ratings down for men, up for women. USA Today, NCAA women's tournament ratings increase while men's viewership falls. Now, if you read those articles, you can get absolute numbers, but overall, you do hear this as the trend line. And it's true. It is the trend line. Although this year, you don't hear so many stories about head-to-head comparisons, about ratings up for women and down for men, because they were up for men from the year before. But you do hear questions like this one asked on the NPR podcast, Consider This, by host Mary Louise Kelly to athletic reporter Chantel Jennings. It's interesting, men's college basketball has actually been declining in popularity and for a while now. Um, Is it outrageous to, to wonder whether one day, one of these days, women might catch and surpass the men? 
I I don't think anything is sort of crazy to think about in terms of what is or is not going to become more popular. You're completely right, though, that, you know, in 2018, 3.5 million people watched the women's NCAA title game. And last year it peaked at 6 million. So you see so many stories, which are true, about ratings growth in women's sports. And it is impossible to predict the future. And it is true that the trends are what the trends are. But absolute values, starting places, and differences are important to consider, too. In the championship game, the last one played, almost four times as many people watched the men play as watched the women play. In the average game of 2022, the women attracted 634,000 viewers per game, the men 3,820,000, so about six times as much for men's games. Over this past weekend, the most watched show on all of television was the men's basketball game UConn versus Gonzaga on TBS, 8 million viewers. The most watched women's game, UCLA versus South Carolina, 1.75 million viewers. 1.75 million viewers is incredibly impressive for a women's basketball game, still less than a quarter of what the men garnered. Then there's this statistic. In fact, 20 million entrants were registered on ESPN's Men's Bracket Challenge. For the Women's Bracket Challenge on ESPN, there were 2 million entrants. Entries are free. ESPN has broadcast rights for the women's game, so they have every incentive to promote each entry, at least equally. So, while women's basketball, popular, gaining, men's basketball has quadruple to 10 times the popularity. And then there's the curious question of attendance in arena. The previously played two rounds of the women's tournament took place on neutral courts around the country. And if you watched on TV, as I did, and maybe you did, you would have noticed there was no one in the upper decks. In the quarterfinal game between Ohio State and Virginia Tech, only 8,466 fans filed into the arena. Capacity, 18,100. The day before, half the seats of the 16,000-seat arena in Greenville, South Carolina, went unfilled. 634,000 viewers a night. That's what the women were getting for the average game in 2022. It's viewed as very encouraging, and it should be. But in other contexts, that amount is... Much less cause for celebration. Here's a headline from Sports Media Watch. XFL sees big drop in week two. That number was the XFL average 655,000 viewers. So that's seen as a stumble for a league that I literally can't name a player in. And I'm a big football fan, supposedly. I guess I'm a big NFL fan. But that is a bigger number than the average women's NCAA college basketball game. So it's true. Let's point this out and let's congratulate the NCAA women and the broadcasters. The biggest games over the weekend beat everything else on cable television, including Succession. But for the average women's game, still fewer viewers than a lot of regularly scheduled shows on the Food Channel, like Girl Meets Farm, to say nothing of the juggernaut 90-day fiancé recap show on TLC. Comparing the men and women's game and their ratings is something that women's basketball fans and supporters hate. They point out all the historic and structural advantages and head starts that the men have had, and that is true, and that is fair, and the trend lines are what they are, but absolute values also bear out some reporting, let us not be afraid of facts. So it's great to note the trajectory, 
And it's right to note that the NCAA does not get as much money as they could for the women's tournament. In fact, a recent pretty exhaustive study estimates the true value of the rights to just the women's tournament should be between 80 and $100 million, though we will see if that hopeful figure is validated by the marketplace. And also of note, and I could be wrong about this, but it does seem that the women's tournament gets a lot of what marketers call free media, updates on newscasts, blurbs on the front pages of newspapers, printouts of brackets alongside the men's. 15 years ago, this was pretty rare. Now there's parody. So as they cut down the nets in Dallas, side of the women's Final Four, I hope I have been able to cut through some of the hype and some of the spin. And as every man and woman who's ever hoisted a three-pointer knows, you gotta have some spin every time you take your shot. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. I only do a quarter of the philanthropy, at most, that she does. It is about a quarter of a quarter at best. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Gperoo, Dupro, and thanks for listening. Okay. Well, that's heartening. That's... That's heartening. I'm heartened by that. That's great.